From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Groundsman Conversations. Today's episode is brought to you in partnership with Web3 Sports Ventures. They are on a mission to create fan-first, data-enabled digital strategies that accelerate innovation in the games that you know and love. To explore how Gen Z and Gen Alpha are engaging with sport, search Web3 Sports Ventures on LinkedIn. And with that said, welcome my fellow groundsman, the great 60-year-old Roger Mitchell. Hi, matey. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. And it's not not sure it's one that we want to dwell on too much, but uh, we had a lovely weekend with a lot of friends. Came up to the lake and we drank too much. And uh, yesterday was kind of a little Terrific. bit of recovery. Yeah, yeah. Just a whole generation of people just letting go one more time. Really good. Really, really good. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh boy! And then yeah. have the restaurant contacted you this morning, Royce, with all the the various bits of lost property, false teeth, and <laughs> crutches, and plastic hips, and. Well, just as well, it was, it was our lads. It was our lads, so they were looking after us. That was that was not so bad. Uh, of course, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, matey, yeah. we have uh, we are a man down today. Um, Captain Morgan is uh, is uh, incapacitated. Let's call it. So I sadly, think he's going to try and make it. He's going to try and join, but we. We are in the lap of the gods, but we do have someone joining us for sure. So it's a returning guest. So why don't you let people know who that is? Okay. Uh, today we've got great pleasure and, and, and thanks to Web3 Sport Ventures to allow us to do this. Great pleasure to have uh, Sam Renouf, the founding CEO of um, the very famous PTO, um, the poster child of challenger brands in our sector uh, that has brought together a new model for... Uh, the athletes of triathlon, uh, both professional and participating, to try and address what we all know is one of the issues where Olympic sports and their amazing athletes don't manage to do make much of a living outside of once every four years. Uh, so we've we've got Sam back because we got him, I don't know what it was, two years, three years ago. The world's changed a lot since then. He's put in a lot of... Um, a lot of hard yards, and I, I think I just thought we'd want to hear what the latest is because Grant, as you remember, he is funded, uh, not solely but uh, cornerstone funded by Sir Mike Moritz, um, probably you know the greatest um, venture capitalist of his generation of Sequoia. So uh, Mike is still fully behind the PTO, and we'll just hear what the next um, phase of its life is going to be, which I think is going to be exciting. Terrific. Well, let's bring Sam on. Sam Renouf, welcome back to Are You Not Entertained? How are you? Roger, it's good to be back. It's been three years almost to the week. Um, I looked about when we were last chatting and the world three has changed. Years. Yeah, three years. Three amazing? Yeah. And, and listen, I, if, I wanted to start off talking about those three years because, you know, before we get into the PTO and we get into, you know, everything we'll talk about in the sports industry, I, I want to talk about you as a, a young man, a young father, um, at the same time, having to lead a startup uh, of very high profile. It's not been easy, has it, Sam? It's not been easy. <laughs> yes, well, I suppose it, it, by saying that, um, 
it's three years since we spoke and I now have three daughters, which is just crazy to say that out loud. <laughs> um, <laughs> since they, uh, they, they come, come hot and fast. Um, and so, yeah, I'm blessed to have twin 18 months old and then a new arrival just came at Christmas. And if you can hear the muskiness in my voice, it's because the home is a cesspit of disease in the moment, which I know that sounds horrible, but... <laughs> No, absolutely. No, we've uh, all been there, Sam. We've all been we've there. All, we've, yeah. all, we've all been there. And, and, and you know, I, well, apart from apart from the, the children thing, which is we have all been there and it does still send a shiver down the spine. How has, how has it been uh, in terms of, you know, the world of startup, the world of VC for a long time was the cool kids club and everybody was doing it and, you know, they were getting funding relatively easy and they would get what they would call their, their, their wealth exit moment and things like that. Apart from that side of it, how have you found being the man where you've got all the responsibility on your shoulders with some serious uh, investors, uh, uh, you know, behind you, a lot of the eyes of the industry behind you. How, how have you found that pressure? So actually, uh, to sort of answer it with something somebody told me quite a while ago, when people celebrate fundraising, and they actually shouldn't, right? So people sort of celebrate, oh, I've done my A round or my B round. And they really shouldn't because all fundraising is a, is a greater obligation to go and do something. Um, so I, I was taught that. Um, so true, Sam. And so, um, yeah, it comes with extra obligations. I mean, the uh, we joke about children before. The PTO is very much a fourth child for me, uh, and it feels like that for my wife as well. Of the, you know the intensity of, of running a startup, especially in sport. I think when you know we're we're not a mainstream sport. Right? Triathlon is niche. We're trying to bring new capital and new energy and a new strategy to the space. But understandably, and this is not a criticism, um, there are a lot of naysayers and a lot of people who don't believe we can do what we can do. But that's hopefully what is going to create the. Um, the potential and the upside once we deliver on it. Yeah, I was listening to this uh, terrific, uh, your appearance on the Triathlon Hour recently, um, Sam, and just to listen to you describe the way you've kind of looked at the PGA Tour and the ATP Tour and, and the majors to kind of get the structure of the, of, the, of the PTO has been fascinating to listen to. But I'd love to ask you about um, recognising the, the, as you say, the niche that you're in and the ability you've had to be unwilling to sacrifice everything on the altar of scale, which is something that a lot of people have done. And it's something, you know, I've been on that journey myself and found that, you know, starting out with an audience uh, similar to yours in that it was smaller, but incredibly enthusiastic, incredibly keen. Um, when you take your eye off that and you decide that in order to be successful, we need to be big, um, I found that it can be a very, very double-edged sword. H how have you managed to go about thinking that through as an idea, choosing the path you've chosen, and then managing the kind of various pros and cons of that path? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a great question for how we think about the challenges of what we're doing. And the probably the best way to answer it is we're not we're, we're obviously wanting to grow triathlon. But that doesn't mean triathlon is going to be the same size as, as soccer or cricket or anything like that. Right now, I'll use the soccer saying rather than football, given how much time we spend talking to Americans. Um, but that doesn't matter if you've got a valuable audience and you can speak to them and they're engaged, as you say, in a passionate audience, then that can be enough, um, providing that audience isn't fragmented. And that was really the core thesis of the PTO when we, we put this together, is that triathlon has been called the new golf, I say that in parentheses, for you know, nearly 15 years, right? Because the demographics of what the people that do triathlon is the archetypal golfer, right? It's the high-performing executive that gets up at five in the morning and does the trading and then off, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, every, every cliche. But until, um, until we, uh, until the PTO came along, that audience was fragmented by 
the lack of media product. And so you could have the most valuable audience in the world of these people, but if you're not able to reach them, then it's not really going to have any commercial value. And that's really the essence of what the PTO is aiming to do. Although it is a media model, it's not about necessarily monetizing the media as much as commercializing the community that comes from it. Sam, perhaps for, for people that haven't listened to the, to, to that triathlon hour, and, and I would recommend everybody does because it, it, it was a terrific conversation, but perhaps you could just walk people through this idea of, um, you know, having the majors, but also then recognizing that you need that, you need something underneath it to make them more impressive, more important, and, and give them the stature they deserve. So yeah, so that, that podcast specifically was around um, the launch of the T100 Triathlon World Tour, which is our new tour that we announced where we now, two, two weeks ago, an event in London. Um, and we really went into detail, which I'm very happy to, about like how, how we think this strategy sort of takes us to, to the next step. But I'd probably start the story even 18 months previous in the middle of do the year. It would have been the middle of summer 22. We put on our third event. And we actually had the benefit of, of Michael Moritz, who's our majority investor, as people might remember from, from us chatting beforehand. He came to one of the events and we had a board meeting there to talk about, you know, where is this going? Like uh, We'd proven, as we would put it, product market fit, to use the very you know, Silicon Valley term, right? We'd, we'd been able to monetize our audience. We were being paid by the locations. We were beginning to get some sponsorship, both in terms of the endemics, but also um, non-endemics. So they were sort of showing, showing it. But one of the quick realizations the board came to was that, for us to take this further, we needed to have more media inventory to be able to tell the stories. And, and what I mean by, by that is um, one of the people we brought on, we were very fortunate to, to bring on Chris Commode, who was the head of the ATP as our chairman. And obviously, Chris, you know, very experienced in sports. You know, tennis has its challenges, and there's, there's no, no question of that. But our original strategy at the PTO was, was frankly to copy tennis and golf. And, and by that, the ATP and the PGA Tour are not the most valuable organizations in those sport, right? As we all know, right? If, if you were, and it's ironic given what's happened with Saudi Arabia over the last three years um, with Live Golf, but if you were investing into golf, you actually probably wouldn't try and invest necessarily in the PGA. You'd go to Augusta, or in, in tennis terms, you go and try and get Wimbledon and, and the Opens. And there's now talk of that happening, which is fascinating as it goes along. And, and Chris's whole thesis to us was that Look, the, the 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 Grand Slams in tennis are obviously incredibly valuable. They're these amazing moments that, that cut through. But one of the reasons that they are so strong is that they sit at the top of this strong pyramid of professional tennis, right? There's the ATP, there's the WTA, there's lots of levels of, of, of media of just having tennis consistently talked about. And if the case of Wimbledon and the French Open and the US Open, they get to sit on top of that and, and benefit. In contrast with us, our strategy was to frankly copy that, right, and make the US Open, um, European Open, Asian Open. But with the lack of strong pyramid underneath, we would risk not having enough inventory to really cut through and get into the consciousness. Um, so long, long preambling story to that what was we crucial needed to this. Do. Crucial this right. to understand. Um, and what we needed to move to, and, and uh, the board gave, you know, for me as a you know, young leader and a team, an amazing mandate. They said, this was in July, or maybe August. They said, look, you've got three months, go away and let's see whether we can take what we've got already, adapt it and come up with a strategy that can really sort of plug that. Um, and what, what it really means in sporting terms was move towards something more like a Formula One narrative where you've got a season long, where you can then have enough Again, it's, it's, this is all about media. There's enough storytelling that people can get behind it, they can get excited and see and follow the journey of the athletes. And that's really what we've been working on for, it was nearly nearly 18 months. So we, we got back together with the board at the end of 22, we came up with this new strategy. And naturally, the, the investors, the first thing they said to me was, well, this is great. This is the go forward plan. 
you need to do it in three months. <laughs> and of course, the one challenge with sport instead of technology, we knew we couldn't do all of these things within three months. So for us, 2023 became a year of treading water, trying to burn as little cash as we possible, because obviously the new strategy was different to the, to the one we were currently doing, and then going and doing all of the work in the background to launch the New World Tour. So it took over 18 months, just, just shy of that, to then be able to launch T100 just, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the, see if I can do it from memory, the, the seven pillars, as we talked about on this podcast the other day, and then this is sort of like sports, um, sports consultancy or sports strategy 101, so it was a really fun process to go through, candidly, was um, athlete consistency, iconic locations, a season-long narrative, a consumer brand, performance data that's, that's textually relevant, um, multi-sport mass participation, and then prestige. And so all of those are probably an hour-long topic, <laughs> um, but those were all of the ingredients that we put into moving from what was the PTO Tour to the T100 Triathlon World Tour that we announced a few weeks ago. Yeah, let, let, let me dig into that a little bit because I think there's just so much, as you say, so much stuff in there. Let's try and break it down a wee bit. So um, you decide as an organisation that you're going to go for you know the year-long narrative and not just the two or three events with the Curtis Cup you know, the kind of Ryder Cup type thing as well. So you go for a, a Formula One model, which means that you're into the game of understanding the unit economics of those events, both for the PTO, also for the host city, and also for the athletes. You know, so you, you must have had to do an awful lot of presenting and pitching and convincing people that this was the right model for them. And, you know, you now sit here, what, 12 months later, and you've got these eight iconic locations that you couldn't come up with anything better. But I, I can imagine that this must have been hard from the first time that you're knocking on a minister's door and wherever to, you know, next time you're going to Vegas and speaking to a different type of executive completely. That That's, that's a stretch for an executive and, and and that's why I started this show about asking you how much of a stretch was it for you, Sam? Because this was all on you. Mm. Well, I'm I'm very fortunate that I have an incredible team. So it's certainly not all on me. We've got a really really great team we pulled together. There's a small small group of us, mainly out of London. Now 25 people working with the PTO. Um, but yes, it was a it was a big lift. But a big lift in a slightly and this is perhaps obvious, but the strategy when we explained it to almost anybody, everybody bought into. Right. There was not a single, maybe a couple of athletes who thought, look, that's a lot of racing. That's probably the only negative we had of, of is it possible to do as much racing as that? But outside of that, um, the strategy, I think, resonated with everybody. It all kind of made sense. So much so that a lot of people actually said, well, how has this not been done before? It's almost surprising, right? Which is very nice if you stumble across that with your, with your strategy. Now, the, the difference, though, is you know, strategy and execution are two very different things, um, as you as rightly point out. And actually taking that to market and convincing the various stakeholders that this is the right way to go. Yes, that, that's the reason why it didn't took three months. It took 18 months instead, um, starting with the cities, then the athletes, then the media. And, and part of this was really about us going and speaking to everyone who's involved as a stakeholder. So whether you're a location, whether it's your broadcast partner, um, I think this is since we had our first conversation three years ago, we were really fortunate that Warner Brothers Discovery became a shareholder in the PTO when we, when we did our B round. That might have been just about the time we were talking, actually. And so we've got, even though we are, a minnow for them, right? Like this is a rights holder that that has you know the NBA and, and all of these these amazing properties. We're a minnow for them, but we do have extraordinary access to their senior folks to sort of guide us on on what makes sense to them. And in the case of Warner Brothers, this is a rights holder that has the Olympic Games. They have all of cycling. They have all of tennis. They have most of golf. So it was very much from their feedback of 
for us to take triathlon. And I use the, the word mainstream with caution because, as we said earlier, this is not about taking on the NFL, but this is about consolidating this audience that already exists. And the way we would do it would be to have enough storytelling that we can get behind these athletes and promote them in these iconic locations and, and the rest will look after itself. So let me ask you on, on that, um, you know, this idea of storytelling and, and um, the Formula One have done that so well with Drive to Survive and turn this thing into a story. And the kind of, the properties that you guys have in terms of, as you say, the location, the challenge, the athletes, I mean, you have some of the most remarkable athletes of the world, in the world, in your stable, right? Doing these extraordinary things. How do you think about the challenge of creating a narrative around these athletes who are so good and so extraordinary? It's very difficult for ordinary people to relate to what they do because we've all driven cars. We've all, you know, we, we get how difficult Formula One cars. How do you go around the challenge of, of taking these incredible athletes and making that narrative relatable to the ordinary person? So, actually, interestingly, you say that triathlon as a sport because it's made up of swimming cycling and running almost everyone in the world can relate to it which is one of our strengths that we found and we didn't know that coming into it though for, for sure it was one of those things that you know if you compare it to most and if you take another step back most sports are not global right there are only a handful of sports that are truly global and played that way swimming cycling running are three of the most um commonly participated sports in the world in fact there was a frost and sullivan report that put the numbers of just under 900 million people regularly do those sports. Now, that's not compete. That doesn't mean they're signing up to do an event like we put on, but they're they're engaging in those sports. And so if you, you switch on the TV and you see it, you can relate to what they're doing. Now, the difference, though, is I think where your question is, is you might see two people running, but unless you're really into the sport, you're not going to realize that they're running a three-minute kilometer or that they're pushing their heart rate to X, Y, and Z. And, and the answer of that is, is technology. That's how we need to fix it. And again, to, to put our parallel back to Formula One, if Formula One just consisted of a two-and-a-half-hour show of seeing cars go round and round and round, I'm fairly sure nobody would watch. It's the fact that, you know, Lando Norris is 0.7 behind and now he's 0.9 or sorry, now he's 0.9 or now it's gone down to whatever. It's, it's the huge amount of data that plays into the storytelling. And one of the things that we've struggled with um, at the sporting level is, is, you know, Formula One is a, what is it now, probably worth $15, $20 billion sport. It has the resources that they've invested in that technology. This just hasn't really existed in endurance sports. And in fact, as crazy as it sounds, even at the Olympic Games, the timing is done in a technology that's nearly 20 years old and you only get timing splits. And so this is really detailed for this, for this audience, but you only get um, updates of how an athlete is officially doing when they run over a timing map, which might be every mile. In this day and age, it's just crazy, right, that this hasn't been done. And so one of those things of the, the seven that I listed off was going and figuring out some proprietary data so that we can broadcast in real time that athlete X is A, pushing this hard, B, running this quickly, and C, has got this gap over the next person. And what does that going to work out as a story? And once you have all those kind of ingredients, you can begin to get some excitement around a performance. Sam, I, I want to come back a little bit to this this moment where your board told you to go away and you know, basically double down and, and just go bigger and, and, and you know, much more ambitious. And you're sitting there, you know, you've got um, Grant and I at a disadvantage here. You, you've got a regular um, dialogue and relationship with Sir Michael Moritz, um, who, who, who understands the world of early stage return on capital probably more than anybody, um, what he's done at Sequoia. Um Michael Morris, when I was doing some work for this, you know, he's he's talked about sport in the past. He said things like minority investments in some sports, um, I think it may even have been football, he's Welsh, Mike, uh, is the most expensive season ticket you can buy. 
you know, yeah. so 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 why is a guy who seems hardcore CFO cold on on the Romanso sport? Why is he so into what you're doing and giving you all the backing to create this Formula One of endurance? Um, well, it, it goes without saying, it's such a it's such a positive reflection for us that we're able to work with someone like Mike. It's a dream, frankly, right? And uh, I'm not just saying that because of, of how he operates. He's an amazing man to to work with, but also the the halo effect we get of having our majority investor, Sir Michael Moritz, without doubt, opens an, an awful lot of doors. Um, more more specifically, answering your question, um, it goes back to so, like you said, he's been quoted many times talking about professional sport. He's although he could comfortably buy pretty much any football team himself, and he is a massive football fan. He's chosen not to, for, uh, as, you, as, you, as you mentioned. Um, and I believe, as far as I know, we are his only sports investment. In fact, I'm 99% sure of that's the, that's the case. And so the reason then becomes with the, with the PTO is not necessarily about sport per se, as much as our business model and the governance structure that we put together. Um, and the, the two things around that that are, again, without sounding like a, a finance podcast, but this is finance to a certain extent. Um, I know we, we are a finance podcast. <laughs> I know. (laughs) Um, We had a very, um, very valuable but fragmented audience. And that's not even finance, right? That's tech. Like that's literally the definition of what tech solves in, in many cases. And and um, Mike, in many many different portfolio companies, has solved that problem, right? And obviously got a, a huge return from it. That was the first. But I think the second, and I, I do really believe this is was probably the reason why he first got involved, was the co-ownership model of having the athletes as co-owners, not just capital. And so our, our model, it's a little bit complex to talk about, uh, uh, but I'm happy to, happy to go into detail. We're actually set up as a 501c6. So the PTO itself is a nonprofit. Um, and then what we've done, just like many sports did since we've spoken in COVID, is take our commercial rights, put it in another entity and take investment against it. And that's happening a lot with even huge sports like the Bundesliga, right? If they're, they're carving out and, and selling some to private equity in our cases. In our, in our case, we were kind of ahead of the curve there in that these incredible athletes are actually co-owners alongside the investors. And I think that the difference there is that's just the in fact there is a quote if I can remember it verbatim is Mike said was that's the mainstay model of Silicon Valley right is to incentivize management or in this case talent right? talent the athlete yeah right the same principle replace the word management with talent and you have the athletes he has a model where it's true co ownership and they'll they'll treat the organization differently and I think that's really what we've seen with the launch of the T100 we've got huge buy in across the sport now that's not to say there isn't great prize money there's there's short term incentive and that's necessary in sport because sport is fragile right especially at this level but also, we've been able to operate with a sort of different philosophical approach to thinking longer term, and that's just really appeals to to a venture capitalist, as opposed to, you know, I think people bundle private equity and venture capital together when they talk about sport. And as you guys both know, it's fundamentally different different source of capital, different approach. We're very much here for the long term, making relatively small bets compared to private equity, but for hopefully a very, very outsized return. And that's what we're motoring on for. Sam, how, how has this changed in those three years since we since we spoke? The, the the money side of this, how what what adjustments have you had to make in your approach given the way that the financial world has shifted in that last three years? Because it's been it's been a material change. It has, and actually 
interestingly enough, for where we are in sport, it's a rare glimmer. And obviously, I'm an optimist, and I have to be. You know, you're running, you know, running a startup. You, if you're not optimistic, then you're, you're never going to make it. You almost need to be narcissistically optimistic to run a startup, especially in this this day and age. Um, sport seems to be a bit of a glimmer of positivity, despite you know the macroeconomic trends and obviously cost of capital going through the through the roof and the rest. But um, we have been surprised actually that even in the last three years. Um, even with the progress we've made, we we feel inbound interest in investing in the PTO. I wouldn't say every week, but quite regularly, people are contacting us. Which I think who, is, who would that be like? Give us an idea. Is that the sovereign guys? Is it Wall Street? Give us an idea, yeah, Sam. Who who are these people? If you don't mind, I won't be pertinent enough to say sort of out loud exactly who they are. But like significant no, no, I don't, I types of yeah, so um, top tier private equity investors in sport. Those, those are the kind of groups that, that have reached out to us and talked. Um, and indeed, and, and across the sort of mix, but really um, what's we've been surprised and encouraged by the interest. And, and I think that's partly a reflection of, as we said before, it, sport is a bit of a glimmer of, of positivity in an otherwise relatively bad macroeconomic climate. And then secondly, we're beginning to show the potential here. And um, when I say potential here, most of the negative headlines, at least in, in my experience in sport, are around the disruption of the media space and i know you guys write about this and roger you've written about it and with your um and often in the interviews that clearly at the very very top there's a fundamental change in the way money is going to flow into the sports industry and so i might have sorry it's fairly obvious what i mean by that is that the people that are writing the checks which is the major media companies are going through massive disruption themselves and although it hasn't flown through to sport yet it kind of has to inevitably right if if there's not money coming in at the top it's eventually not going to go out the bottom um and we're counter counter cyclical to that because as a sport, and actually if I go off on a little slight tangent, one of the times when I was with you guys in Como, I think the first time round was when the penny really dropped for me on this, in that um this is not the PTO is not a business strategy built on media rights. Media is important. It's a flywheel that helps the whole business operate, right? Because we're consolidating our audience with it, we're showing value to sponsors, etc. But we're not requiring that B2B check to sort of keep the lights on. Um, and it was in, and I appreciate most of the, the Como talks are Chatham House rules, so I won't sort of go too much detail, but it was surprising for me to sort of hear these leaders in very established sports all saying how worried they were about the media climate. And I'm sat there thinking, well, I've never had a media dollar ever, and my business model is not really built on that. So this is actually really encouraging. <laughs> Again, eternal optimist. Sam, so whilst we're on that theme, that, that is a huge point. So let people understand a little bit then what the organisation of the PTO is in, in terms of its PL account, if I can say that, in terms of, you know, what Mike Moritz would be saying as a return to investors. So you've got um, you've got um, hosting fees for cities that host you. You've got participation from people who are wanting to take part in the races because it's not just the very top you know there's there's a, a big part there all, all different types of people and what is their sponsorship as well yep absolutely yes and those are the, the three core buckets and then the fourth becomes media and ancillaries that we call it which is very very small amounts of, of other things um and actually what, what you just described there with, with the absence of participation is a really relatively traditional sports mix right you just take the word participation and replace it with ticketing um in our case we have 
thousands of people that will spend money a year, up to a year in advance to come and participate as an amateur in these events. And so, again, it's been a while since we spoke about it, but for, for any who haven't heard me talk about it beforehand, triathlon has this really unique combination. And we think this is very, very core to our, our strategy in that if we compare ourselves to Silverstone in Formula One or Wimbledon, you can't get on the racetrack after Lewis has been around and go and do it yourself. Whereas with triathlon, you can, as this is a participation-based sport. Now, what the way that sport normally operates at the moment is the professionals and the amateurs all racing at the same time. We've changed that in that we've separated the media product, the professionals. They're on in the afternoon or the evening. But that means in the mornings, we can have your everyday amateur participant that's wanting to strive and push themselves and, and make themselves a better person. Um, and that's been a hugely For, positive. Forgive me if that makes me laugh. <laughs> your everyday triathlete. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> Sam. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> You'd be surprised, perhaps. Um, this is not, look, there are different levels of it, right? This is not all your type A1 ridiculous person that's spending 10, 15 grand on a bike and flying around the world. It's also, um, it is ultimately quite an accessible sport with the right, right intent. In fact, I was at a, an event this weekend, an incredible speech from an oncologist who was working with um, cancer patients who had, having been through cancer, he was taking them on a journey to do a triathlon. And the whole study was whether having had cancer, would they respond in the same way to training and would they be able to do it? And I mean, if you can get through cancer and do a triathlon afterwards, it just shows it's it's up here in the head rather than down in, down in the legs. Um, but anyway, to answer your question, participation, a very important pillar. Um, that then feeds, you know, the government hosting. So obviously cities want to host events like us because a couple of different reasons, but like we're bringing economic impact, right? Especially with around the participation model, we're showcasing the city. And th this is where it's been, a, I would say, we didn't realize quite how positive this was when we launched, but we're very happy to have benefited from it, that this isn't a stadium-based sport, which, I mean, that's fairly obvious, right? But it means that if you as a city, if you're the city of Singapore and you want to showcase your city, Triathlon is one of the best ways to do it because these are athletes that are out 10, 15, 20 kilometers riding through the streets. In the case of Singapore, which is where our Asian event is, the swim takes place in the Marina Bay and they gave us a special dispensation to be able to do that. And you can't get a better advertisement for the beauty of the city than something like us or like Formula One, right? And so that's the parallel. But yes, in, a, in long answer to your question, those are the, sort of the three core revenue streams. Media, we don't really look at it as a revenue source, eventually it will be. If, if we can consolidate enough of this audience, we're clearly going to create value. And that value will be monetized in whatever way we'll get to in, in many years' time, which is hopefully not me being flippant saying, just don't worry about it. It's more focus on consolidating the audience first. And it's a very Silicon Valley approach that we will monetize it later. But that media product becomes the flywheel that attracts more participation, has prestige that attracts the cities. Um, and ultimately, we'll bring in non-endemic sponsors. And we're really close. I, I'm hoping a week away from maybe two weeks by the time this podcast comes out from announcing our first non-endemic partner, which would be you know, a major technology company that's saying, we get the value in your audience. We want to work with Triathlon. They put their name up on the on the banner because that's um, that's important. Terrific. So, Sam, let's, let's stick with the cities there you talked about. Um, and, and walk us through the evolution of the tour, the cities that you've chosen, the reason you've chosen them, and how that tour is going to progress around the world. Because it's, as I say, they're, they're extraordinary places and they do lend themselves incredibly well to this backdrop that, that has everybody salivating. So, yes. so just walk us through that, through the tour. It sort of relates back to we are sponges for um, feedback and we listen and we look at all the other sports and what's working and what's not. And, and one of the things that we really sort of came to, is, particularly in Formula One with this incredible 
growth. Obviously, restaurants drive to survive, and it's almost become a cliche now of, of how successful Drive to Survive was. But one of the things that Formula One did an amazing job of was going to Miami and Vegas to grow their US audience, right? Not going with the greatest respect to, to Long Beach. They're not going back to Long Beach, where it was traditionally. They've gone to the entertainment capital of the world in Vegas. And so um, if you think about it, uh, I, I, it would be interesting to know the data from Liberty Global, the amount of people who go to Monaco for the F1 and don't actually really watch the racing, I'm going to guess it's fairly high, right? It's it's yeah, a I cultural so moment, right? It's a cultural moment that they go to. And so we we sort of took a leaf out of that book and said, if we're wanting to promote and grow the sport, one reason to come and do a PTO event is because of the razzmatazz and the excitement of the best professionals. But if we can also put it on in a really beautiful location that people want to go to, it's certainly not going to hurt. Um, and so we have we went out of our way and we actually put together a, a balanced scorecard of about 15 different metrics of a, of a reason a city might be attractive to us and and went through a very long process of going speaking to people. Where, where we've ended is Miami, Singapore, London, Las Vegas, Dubai, really, really top tier um, cities and locations, which we're pretty excited about. Sam, do you, do you try and um, align with other events or try and steer clear of other events? Is there a, is there a preference between the two? Oh, that, that's a great question. So to your comment earlier, I think it was Roger asking about how, how we did this through through COVID and, you know, the, the difficulty of, or, or Grant, no, sorry, it was you asking about, you know, the different financial situation. In 2023, to minimize our cash burn, we actually partnered with third-party events because we thought, you know what, that we don't need to go through investing all the infrastructure ourselves. Let's piggyback on an existing audience. Um, obviously, long-term, Ownership is really important, so just putting on events with other people wasn't going to give you know Mike Morris the returns that he'll expect one day. But as a way to test and prove out the market um, whilst minimizing our cash burn, that's something we went through. Um, we've got a couple this year that we're we're working with third parties, but the long term model and and it's one of the not just the long term model. Um, one of the reasons why we think this will be very valuable is that all of the rights sit with us as a central body. Um, one comparison within endurance sports, you know, we talk about Formula One a bunch, is the world marathon majors in running is an incredible movement of, you know, the top, very, very top tier marathons that are getting 50,000 people and $200 million of economic impact and, and top sponsorship. But they're ultimately a cooperative of seven, I think maybe eight now different races. Um, and in our case, we're basically replicating that model, but having it under one rights holder where we get operational scale and leverage on, on going and doing deals. Sam, uh, let's go on to the other thing that we've talked about in this industry for four or five years now, which is the whole, well, two things that are linked, uh, governance and um, ownership of the the athletes that move the needle. I think all of that's coming a lot into focus now. And, you know, reading about your event there in London, you were sat there beside the head of the World Triathlon, whatever they're called, the governing body of triathlon. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how come they're sitting there and almost, you know, co-glorying in in what you've done as opposed to staring daggers at you and seeing you as a threat? What did you do to get them to say, let us be this vehicle for you? Yeah, now this is an interesting topic, right? So one of the seven things I think I reeled off was prestige. And there's a couple of reasons for this, actually. For the f- first thing was an observation and in one of our board meetings that one of the accidental byproducts of new players in sport um, is they come in and they actually fragment the audience even more than 
they intended to. And what I mean by that is, you know, you get a new tournament comes in and all they do is stretch the sport apart rather than consolidating it. And if the core of what the PTO's model is, is to consolidate that audience, actually the potential of fragmenting it further was a real business risk. So it's both a sort of political point, but also a a very commercial strategy. Um, And we looked at, frankly, what was happening in in golf, right, with a, a new player in live that was going head to head and fighting. And we thought, that's not really what we want to be doing here. Like we can align with the sport and grow it if there'll be willingness on the other side. And to obviously you, you can have that attitude coming to the table. It doesn't mean the, the other side of the table will look at it the same way. We were quite fortunate in that World Triathlon as a governing body immediately recognized that. They they saw the benefit of what we were doing for the sport and growing it. And uh, particularly because of the athletes, that this is an athlete body rather than a, a for-profit promoter. And so in launching this new tour, we have partnered with World, World Triathlon and have been officially recognized by them as the long distance series of of triathlon. Um, and the, you know, the sporting equivalent is that's like us launching, I'm trying to think of a name of it, but oh, it's, it's like, like Formula E being recognized by, by FIA, right? So FIA is the global body for motor racing, as we all know, and they obviously put their name or their badge, their sanctioning on certain certain tournaments um, or leagues in the case of Formula E and Formula One. And so there was that's the sort of governance political answer to you. Um, the other reason we did it, or the other reason both, both sides did it, was to bring prestige for the athletes. Because one of the things we did is sit down with our top pros and say to them, what What's important to you? Like what matters? Obviously, short-term incentive, prize money is important, but actually being able to say you're an official world champion is also incredibly important for athletes, right? They want to, they can walk along the, up and down the street in their hometown. No one can know anything about a triathlon, but they know they're a world champion. And so that's really what we put together um, with the partnership with World Triathlon, the governing body. Sam, how do you, how do you think about this, this, um, this nation-state um, situation? Because it strikes me that, that the PTO is is absolutely in the sweet spot for a nation state to do something similar to live, to, to come in and say, right, we want to take this on. You don't have an incumbent that you need to fight against. You don't have all the legacy issues that they have with the PGA Tour. Um, you have a, a smaller world of superstars, which is easier to try and, try and kind of ring fence. Um, and you have this ability to take this, this um, circus, and I don't use the term pejoratively, on the road, around around the world, to beautiful places, and 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 maintain ownership of that, and really build it in the way you see fit. So, obviously, I understand the sensitivities around it, but this must be something that either you guys have thought about pursuing from your side of it, or it must be something that nation states of some description have had interest in at some point. I don't know how much you can talk about that, but I'd be interested to hear. Sure. Well, and it's like it, this doesn't necessarily. I think where you're where you're leading is in terms of equity ownership, right? Of nation states actually taking ownership in the business by us even having an event in the country, we're bringing an awful lot to what they're doing. So, like if we, if we take Singapore as an example, where we have had some conversations candidly with with the, the sovereign wealth funds there, I don't think they'll pr- proceed because they're not necessarily looking at assets like us. But that doesn't mean that there are other stakeholders within their governance structure, which is the the sports um, ministry and the Ministry of Tourism key stakeholders in what we're doing. Now, in, in the Middle East, in some of those markets, there's been there is a lot of noise at the moment and a lot of publicity about how they're wanting to fast-forward sports, um, or you know, that's, if that's the right way of putting it, right? They want to go and get a population that hasn't traditionally competed or participated in sport. That's where I think we're actually really, really attractive, which is one of the reasons why we're in Dubai, because... I mean, if you think if you're trying to get sport adopted in a, in a country, having sports that have got a low barrier to entry, like swimming, cycling and running, that you can do on your own as an individual, it's just so much easier than trying to sort of get together, a, you know, a soccer club of, 
of 22 people, right? Like there's just a such a barrier to adoption there. So I think that's one of the reasons why we've got um, one soon to be two events in the Middle East this year. And if I go into detail on like some of the some of the groups we're working with are just phenomenal. There is a in in Dubai there is a crown prince driven initiative called the Dubai Fitness Challenge, which is 30 days, 30 minutes a day in November that the Crown Prince encourages his population to, to go and do. And the byproduct of that is they have a, a cycling event of 30,000 people. They have a run now of nearly 220,000 people who do this run. It's on Sheikh Zayed Road, for those who know Dubai. They shut down the main highway. And it's just an incredible movement to get the population healthy. Understandably, we are an attractive event, therefore, to host. And so the, the PTO, um, the T100 Dubai, will be bang in the middle of the, the 30 by 30. So I think long answer to your question, it's not so much necessarily about investment. It's also about leveraging properties like us to have the impact socially that a lot of um, a lot of this sort of sports thesis is, is about. Sam, I'm going to come back to what I was saying before about governance and, and athletes a little bit. Um you know, because I think it's quite difficult, certainly for other people to understand how sport works. The different governing bodies, their different calendars, their different events often competing. Um, you know, World Triathlon, is are they part of the IOC? Yes. Right. Yeah. So it's they participate in the Olympics. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, triathlon's been in the Olympics since. So, how do you fit in? How do you fit in your stuff when the Olympics come round? Do you stay clear of the Olympics, or do the athletes have to make a choice? Yeah. So, look, this is where the nuance of there is a lot of nuance in sport, and there's a lot of layers to work through. And, and us launching a new tour, the year of the Olympic Games, is either the best possible time because there's more promotion about triathlon in general, right, or the worst time because of the scheduling impacts. Um, in our case, of the 40 athletes that we contracted in, only about five or six of them will be, do both, right? So there's actually not that much um, crossover. And what we ended up doing is, is, is being, we hope, because we're an athlete body, as accommodating as possible in that we built a calendar that allowed athletes to go and do the Olympic Games and then come back to the T100. So we sort of recognize that. that um, and look, regardless of how successful, if, if, if triathlon is the next UFC, it still won't be as big as the Olympic Games, right? Like, I mean, that really is something that I think sometimes sports groups get a bit too much ego and think they want to be the biggest in the best. Yeah, okay, but, Sam, but let, let me try and understand that. Maybe I got this wrong. You've got 40 athletes. You said five of them, five of them will do the Olympics as well as you. If my reverse logic what is working, that means that 35 won't be doing the Olympics. That's right. So the, the what we've done, yeah, look, it's a little complicated, but I'm happy to talk about it. Olympic distance racing is very short distance. Um, it's short, it's sharp, and it tends to be done by athletes when they're younger. And then over time, as they've got a little bit mature in their careers, they tend to do long distance racing, which is more traditionally Ironman, which is the brand that people have people have heard of. And so our product is more focused on the, the longer distance, which is where all the participation is. So think of it as, in fact, the, the sporting comparison would be the Olympics, you've got the, this doesn't quite work because these are both in the Olympics, but it's like having the marathon versus the 1500 meters, right? You might do the 1500 meters runner as, as a runner, sorry. And then over time, when you're a bit older, you migrate to the marathon and the marathon is where the mass participation is, is at. So there was already bifurcation in the sport anyway. It's just that those athletes were not competing in a season long tour. They were doing individual events. And so now we're, we're putting the two back together. So the end result, which is probably what, where you're, you're thinking of your question is, is that you have a world tour structured with with two two different distances. You've got the Olympic distance, which is the shorter stuff, and then you have the T100, which is us. And previously, that was fragmented racing. It wasn't a narrative. There wasn't any organization behind mm -hmm. it. I get that. I, I get that. The, the reason I'm asking it is slightly different reason, Sam. 
you know, I think, you know, from the early days of this podcast, we've always wondered whether the, the Olympic model was actually the best uh, uh, solution for for sports that, that, that are like that. And, you know, they, they were given enough money dripped down from the IOC to keep them alive, but not enough to, to actually thrive and make a decent living for their athletes. I always felt the PTO is, um, is an answer to that. Uh, and, you know, my perfect mind a little bit goes to, well, okay, does this actually ultimately, if they have to make a choice, take them away from the Olympics? Because 35 of yours seem to be saying, I'll give it a pass. Right, exactly. And look, and this is where we could debate the the pros and the cons of the IOC Olympic model with, with niche sports all day long. I, I'm very much with you, right? There's the, it's almost become as an impediment that every four years, a bunch of money is given to these federations that they then kind of rely on to run rather than having to stand up to on two feet and commercially go and, and run their operation in a different way, right? It's, um, there's a reason why many of these sports, I was with a, with a rower recently who just couldn't believe the level of investment and money and potential that was in triathlon compared to rowing, right? And it's, again, it's another sport that sort of lives off that Olympic handout every four years. Um, but look, it's I think the, the better maybe comparison of the way to think about it is both golf and tennis are Olympic sports, but those athletes, they're not focused on the Olympic Games, right? They're focused on winning the Grand Slams and the Masters and the Ryder Cup. That's my point. That's, that's my point. Uh, the, the, you're, 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 you're following on those guys and if I was at the IOC, and again, the reason I'm saying all of this is because I'm incredibly in admiration of how you've pulled this off, because normally governing bodies uh, kind of like fighting with each other, don't let this happen. But you've managed to insert yourself in in a way that for an investor, whether it's a sovereign wealth or whether it's from Wall Street, or whether it's a Mike Moritz of the situation, you're not asking them to take on what I call political risk. The, the investment scenario has been, has had this sting pulled out of it by you already, which I, I can't think of another example of somebody that's done that, that's done that. Uh, you know, is Sale JP, have they got the same kind of like thing sorted out the way you have? Because you often get bracketed together. Um, probably the only one I think that's really comparable is probably Formula E. And look, there's some other pros and cons on that on, you know, the car racing about whether Formula One does it eventually go electric anyway, and then the then the, the legs get pulled from underneath it. But that's probably the closest parallel. Um, look, it's, it's a fair point, right? The people underestimate the political and the governance restrictions in sports. And I think that's what, if, again, I know you talk about it on this podcast regularly, that's where people have missed that in some other more established sports and come and invested and realized actually the governance structure means they're never going to see a return on capital, or, or at least it's going to be much, much harder to see a return on their investment than they first thought. We have managed to navigate that quite quickly. And it's kudos, and I'm not just saying this because it's because it's a podcast, but it's also kudos to the sport for recognizing it. So for World Triathlon to say, instead of pushing us away, saying, oh, we don't want to work with you, you do your own thing, they've welcomed us and, and recognized the potential. Now, in contrast, this happened in swimming a few years ago. As you, you may remember there was a, a, a breakaway yeah. group. Professional swimming, yeah. Right with ISL, right, and they just fought, 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 and in, in the end, it both blew up. And obviously, there's the war in Ukraine is 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 impacted that a lot because that's where the, the money was coming from. But we want to do the opposite of that, right, and work with the sport because perhaps it's because we are a small niche sport. It just creates more of an opportunity to do that rather than fight. Um, that if you're a small sport anyway, if you spend half your time infighting, um, then you're never going to grow. Um, whereas we've hopefully, yeah, de-risked it at least from a from a governance and a political structure. Um, and I think this does all come down to, again, as we were talking about, Mike Moritz's original investment was partly because of the co-ownership with the athletes and that 
this is a model 100 percent, and i hope that we will see it in other sports hopefully i mean even the pga is backwardly landing there uh, ironically enough with all that's happened recently but um there's it just seems to us very natural that you would align with the talent or the management and, and in this case it's talent i've got one other question i think it's the, probably the last one but but it's you know you mentioned this word ancillary revenues earlier <laughs> um so the playbook, the playbook is you create anywhere, anywhere, anywhere in business. Now you create a community business um, and if it's a rich audience, they've got a lot of money to spend. You go through the part, the part of consolidating them, which you said, you know, the anti-fragmentation thing that Mike Moritz understood so well. Um, the next bit then is what they call the ARPU play, you know, Um how much do these folks that are doing triathletes, how much are they spending on bikes and travel and and, kit and everything like that? And how much are you hoping of that dollar you're, it's going to come your way, Sam? I mean, you've, you've just hit on the core thesis of how of where the growth comes from longer term, right? So we're very focused here. And this is the kind of stuff that I'll sort of be a little bit coy about not saying too much on a podcast about what we're doing for, for obvious reasons. But the strategy is to establish the T100 tour as the premium tour within within multi-sport, right? With all of the prestige and they're essentially becoming the grand slams for our sport. And once you've done that, because of the business model of participation where we're collecting first-party data at the get-go, it's not like I have to figure out how to get the first-party data. We have this information from everybody naturally there are then a huge amount of ways we can go and monetize that and that's why you know back to the media comment this media is important and the broadcast product is important monetizing it through b2b sales is not right because there's so much potential around as you say the arpu play and that can be i mean there are literally 10 or 12 different ways which we could we could um, monetize that whether it's e-commerce whether it's travel all of these kind of things because as you pointed out these people spend this is just like golf and i know Golf is probably the more commonly played with your, your um, listenership or the, the people who are tuning in. You know, this is the same as buying another driver to get an extra foot, right? These are people who will spend $1,000 on a seat post, a seat post <laughs> um, to, to make their, their cycling faster. And our logic here is if you're the most prestigious place to engage with that content, then you're going to be able to um, get value from it. Very last one, because you brought up something there, and this is the last one. Um, right, so the only thing in your way then to total world domination and taking all of the dollar of this very rich audience community are your competitors. So, you know, Iron Man, is there any others out there? And like, what, what is the, what's the play there in the competitive scenario? So the interesting thing is, look, there are competitors in that there are other people that are doing mass participation triathlon, but there's no one really tying it together in the way that we have. And it's partly because it's capital intensive. So let's just call, call that out straight away, right? It is expensive to do what we're doing, to go and take these races, put them on, and then broadcast them with top-tier prize prize money. And so we don't really have any direct competition with the, with the business model we've got. That's not to say that we don't the, the competition is as much for people's time as anything else, right? So from a, and, and this is probably a, a good thing to chat about. We don't consider from a television perspective our competition being other triathlons. It unfortunately is Formula One and the NBA and NFL, right? Because there's only so much time we have to engage with media as, as human beings. And that does put a very, very high bar on what we do do there. So that's probably one thing. And then secondly, it's really about us convincing from a participation perspective, why should some a swimmer, cyclist or runner come and do this rather than something else? 
Um, and our thesis there is pretty simple, hopefully, right? If we put it on in prestigious locations that are beautiful with all this razzmatazz of the professionals, that it should all come together. So we're super, super bullish, as you can probably tell from the enthusiasm, even if with the flu that I've got. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're very bullish on it and that it's we've taken three years to sort of learn what works and what doesn't. We, we haven't fully delivered it yet, but we think we've got a strategy now that can really accelerate and take triathlon way, way further than it's ever been before. Terrific. Sam, it's a fantastic way to wrap it up. Uh, just one more thought for you before you go, and I don't want you to dismiss this out of hand, but just an okay. idea for you to kind of run up the flagpole. Drop the running, put darts in as the third leg. Just Like I said, don't, don't answer me right now. Give it some thought. Give it some thought. Darts is hot right now. A lot of participation in that sport. This might be a game changer for you. Well, we, we joke about that, but we certainly look at what Matchroom have done with Ali Pali and those kind of right. pieces. You know, and you need to, right? And that's where probably the one thing I've been quite proud of as, a, as an organization is, I used the word sponge before, we listen to everything, right? And we're looking at what are all the different things that are working in different sports industries and then trying to bring them to what we're doing. And that's a fun way to operate a business and hopefully a successful one. Terrific, Sam. We wish you all the best there. And just before you go, just let people know where they can find out more about the PTO um, because obviously, they're, they're, as you say, there are so many people out there that, that participate in these sports. It'd be great to give them a place to go and, and yes, look it up Yes, absolutely. More. So look, the, the main place now is our new consumer brand, which is the T100. So T100triathlon.com is what we've rebranded. All of our consumer-facing properties. PTO still exists because we're like the body, you know, UEFA to Champions League. But T100 Triathlon is what uh, everyone's focused on now. And hopefully we can welcome you all to an event and get, get your swimmers on soon, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah good luck with that although you do, if you do switch the darts out I'll, I'll give it a crack Sam mate it's been an absolute pleasure as always great to see you we wish you all the best with it and uh, hopefully if we don't see you before we'll see you in the fall in, in Lake Como thank you look forward to it yeah look after yourself mate and I know you did a big effort to do this thank you thank you very very much yeah thanks Sam Oh, Roger, yeah, I've got to say, Sam's such an impressive guy both, both, both as an athlete but also as a businessman as a, and as the face of um, what is a really, really interesting enterprise. You know, it's just, it's just so good to have a chance to talk to him. It is. It is. He is getting a little bit chunky, though. You know, like, I think he's, <laughs> I think he needs to get back. Needs, we'll put it down to those three, those three, uh, those three, the, the daughters. You know what they say in Italy when you say something like that? You know, like in the three years since we met, I've had three children, and they say, oh, it works. At least it's working. <laughs> Well, don't forget, Ross, that the, 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 the camera adds 10 pounds um, and, uh, you know, and, and these, these uh, computer cameras add even more than that. So, no, he's doing really well. He's doing really well. And, you know, to keep, as I, as I went, you know, laboring that point, sport is all about finding this balance between the governance, the athletes, um, the media dollars and, and the P&L account. And, 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 you know, they've done really well on that. They're doing really well on that. Uh, he, he was quite coy about what's going on, but I think I understand that there's a lot of people, he called it fielding inbounds, I think that was his phrase. There's a lot of people knocking yeah. at the door and you can imagine who they are because you nailed it in the podcast, Grant, the kind of uh, people that would be interested. And, you know, I, I think all of us in sport and the industry are pulling for the PTO because it is an idea of an optimistic way out of this, out of the storm you know, um, mm. a, a salvation for the Olympic sports, maybe uh, all of these kind of things. So, you know, great, great stuff. And, and, you know, we'll see what happens in the next six months. If he pulls off this, you know, Formula One of endurance, that's such a boost for the whole industry. Yeah, absolutely right. We, we just we need to get access to his Rolodex, Ross, because I think this snooker darts temp in bowling triathlon, <laughs> the AYNE tour, 
This might be something that you, me, and Jilo can put together. All right. Well, listen. Our thanks yeah, to uh, yeah. our thanks to Sam Renu for joining us. Our thanks also to our terrific sponsors, Web Three Sports Ventures. Uh, please check out and look uh, look at them on LinkedIn and find out more about what they're up to with Gen Z and Gen Alpha, engaging with sport. Uh, our thanks to you, as always, for listening. Um, if you don't follow us already on Twitter, that's very easy to remedy. You can follow us at Entertained R. That's the word A R E. You'll find me at T T M Y G H and myself at R P M Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Until next time, my fine feathered Scottish friend. Take care, Grant. Take care and look after yourself. We're all getting up there now. You're not far behind. Don't <laughs> listen to the jokes. You're not that far behind. <laughs>